Richard Gerver is an award-winning speaker, best-selling author, and renowned thinker on education. As headmaster of the failing Grange Primary School, he famously transformed the school into one of the most acclaimed learning environments in the world and was celebrated by UNESCO and the UK government for its incredible turnaround. Sunny Verma is the founder and CEO of Tutorbrite, an in-home tutoring business that focuses on making students limitless and happy. A chance opportunity led Sunny into the world of education, and as you're about to hear, he doesn't sound anything like a regular educator. This is an episode for repeat listening. I'm Cody Royal, and this is Where Others Won't. Richard Gerver, how are you doing, mate? I'm doing great, thanks, Cody. It's brilliant to be with you. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. And my mate up the road, Sonny Verma, is with us as well. How are you doing, Sonny? I'm great. I'm even better be live with you guys right now. How cool is this? We're, we're cross-continental. We've got a UK element. We're a couple of guys in Toronto here. We're going to talk about transforming education, something that you two are... Uh, blazing a path uh ad and and we can all learn so much from what you guys are doing and the conversations you're having and the content that you're creating and the people that you're interacting with so thank you for being here this is going to be a, a really fun and really intellectual probably hour maybe a little bit over an hour if we get going but uh thanks for being here with me let's jump in and then we'll we'll open up after we've introduced you guys to the audience but richard You've been a, a long-time practitioner of change and, and advocated for transformation in education. You've written books about it. What's your current commentary on just the state of education and how it's preparing our youth and us, I guess, for what's ahead? I think, you know, the biggest challenge that, that I see we've faced really for the, oh God, 30 plus years that I've been in and around education is that we are constantly obsessed with efficiency. So when we talk about the transformation of education, when we talk about the challenges in education, particularly at policy and higher level, we end up being trapped in a loop around how do we make our existing system work more efficiently? How do we get more kids through it, uh, examinations and tests at higher levels? So no matter what the dialogue, the policy keeps coming back to that. And to an extent, I, I think we're victims of our own upbringing. You know, we were all educated to live in a world of certainty. We were all educated to live in a kind of industrial age, which we know now has moved beyond the economic arc and we're, we're post-industrial. We're in an age of innovation and creativity. Um, yet we, we have an education system that is still predicated on preaching to children the myth that if they get their heads down, do what they're told in the way they're told to do it, everything will be fine. Um, and so for me, I think that's the biggest challenge. We've got to start to think about evolution rather than efficiency. And we've got to start challenging um, our whole community around the idea that no matter how hard we look for it, certainty is becoming a rarer and rarer thing. 
So we've got to kind of train our kids to live in a more agile, more dynamic, more uncertain world where the opportunities are huge, but the risks are great. We're going to revisit that because I'm huge on organizational design. And, yep. and so I want to talk about kind of that design of the, the whole system. But Sunny, let me ask you a similar question. You have a really unique perspective in that you see children outside of the schooling system itself and in a one-on-one teaching environment in home with your tutoring business, which is called Tutor Bright. Like what's your current commentary on, on what you're seeing and, and how we're developing our children for, for those challenges? I think first and foremost, we have an inauthentic purpose when we think of education as a society, as parents and as educators. Uh, we say education is the process of learning and we want our children to learn and love the learning process as even when you become an adult, learning never stops. It's in everything and anything that we're ever going to desire is going to require learning. So learning needs to be the forefront of everything. But the purpose of education um, in this post-industrial age is get a better job. You go to school to get grades, to get into university, to get employed. So you have a security in your life. But as Richard said there, you know, we're, we're moving away from security and certainty just in general. So the first thing I think is that the objective of education is not for higher education, higher learning, it's for higher income and for security. But that becomes extremely contradictory because when you impose these beliefs that that is the purpose of education, you start to limit your potential. You start to reduce the prospects of things that you'd want to achieve in your life because this has been sort of regurgitated and told to you and digested by youth all over the world. The second thing that I think about is that education in its form front is the root of a lot of some of the mental health issues that we see in this world. And the reason why I say this is because we start to limit the dreams of our children because we limited the dreams of ourselves. You know, when I work with kids, I always do this really interesting icebreaker with them. I ask them two questions. The first question that I ask every youth is, what do you want to be when you're older? Now, this is the question that everybody's been asked. And because everybody's been asked it, we essentially have these I would call them semi-rehearsed answers. We'll say, I need to be a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer, uh, whatever my parents told me to be. And, and especially when as you get to the older, sort of the tween teenage years, you really start to hear how these have been sort of rehearsed and the innovation starts to die around them. Now, when, when, I, when I have this conversation and I look at the, the child and I ask them a second question, I say, in my hand is an imaginary magic pill. If you swallow this magic pill, you could become great at anything. What would you become great at? Now their eyes widen, their ears perk up, there's hesitation and excitement in their voice. And I, I hear everything from, I'd be the prime minister or the president, I would cure cancer, uh, I'd be a rock star. So the most beautiful part is that I get to hear their vast and amazing ambitions. But there's a really sad underlying story. I pretty much asked the exact same kid the exact same question. I said, what do you want to be when you're older? And if you could be great at anything, what would you be? Yet the answers are distinctly different. And that always made me beg the question of why. And the, the most interesting part is when I do this, I, I usually do it, you know, where their parents around or their um, guardians or their teachers that would be around. And they'd always come up to me and say, Sonny, that, that's really great that you got my child talking about their ambition and their future. And it's amazing that you got them excited, but we'd love it if you could just tone it down a little bit. <laughs> and my question always is, why would you want me to tone it down? And the response is, well, we don't want to get their hopes up. We want to protect their hopes. 
in this world that we live in, in this life that every single one of us lives in, there's only two directions our hopes can go, up or down. So it makes me think, what direction do we push our hopes? And the singular definition of depression is hopelessness. So if we're going to start telling people that you can't be, you can't have, and you can't do at a young age, this is something that they're going to adopt. And when we think about all our dreams and ambitions, the things that, that make us get out of bed with purpose, the things that make us want to, want to be awake, whether it be sleep and dreaming, are the things that, that make life worthwhile. They're the things that create those beautiful butterflies. We should not be robbing people of this. And when you start to tell a kid, and I understand that not everybody's going to be a rock star. I get that not everybody's going to be an athlete or not everybody's going to be the prime minister or president and not everybody's going to find the cure for the, the next major illness, but somebody will. And who's to tell that child that you can't be that somebody? I mean, this is where innovation lies. Innovation lies in the human mind. And so we sh what we need to do is extract that innovation, promote it, get, get children excited about it, get ourselves excited about it. If we stop robbing our generate the next generation of this, I, I can tell you the innovation changes. I've seen Fs turn into As. I've seen kids that were considered delinquent that, and considered to go nowhere absolutely adopt a new mentality. And then their parents adopt a new mentality. And it's, and it's crazy because what happens is that through osmosis, people just start to feel better. Everybody around them starts to say, if you can do it, I can do it too. It's really interesting what you're saying, Sonny, because I think it, in many ways, it's, it, we've almost forgotten that fundamental purpose of, of education. You know, one of the things I often say to, to people is our job as educators is first to help our kids to dream and then to turn those dreams into aspirations. And for a lot of young people, you know, we assume that dream, dreams are easy because, uh, you know, dreams and, and aspiration are, are always going to be furnished by experiences and that thought of opportunity, you know, is there opportunity in my life? Am I being stimulated by new experiences? And sadly, whilst many kids are, you know, there are millions of kids around the world who are not getting any stimulation, uh, stimulation or opportunity to, to experience new things, they therefore can't formulate dreams. So as educators, we have to help our kids to dream. We have to broaden their horizons, broaden their experiences, give them new opportunities. And then when one catches fire, our job is to take that dream and turn it into an aspiration. And for me, that's a bit like building a ladder, right? The dream is at the top of the ladder. And, and the purpose of education then is to help kids construct the rungs so they can climb the ladder. So if they want to be a rock star, they want to be a pilot, they want to be a dancer, they want to cure cancer, if that's what grabs them, then it's our job to help them understand what steps they have to take to head towards that dream. So that an aspiration is a dream that becomes tenable. It becomes something that they can head towards. But I think you're right. You know, all too often what we're doing is limiting kids' dreams for a number of reasons. One is because of parental experience and background, or as you say, living our dreams vicariously through our own children, or as parents, you know, for the best will in the world, we're all hyper protective of our kids and we want the best for them. So we don't want them to fail, you know, from the time they're babies, we almost, there's an argument, we overprotect yeah. our kids. We don't let them fall over, brush themselves down and stand up and go again. And I think that's 
particularly true in the education sphere, where we say to educators, to schools, to kids, to teachers, yeah, that sounds great, but we don't want you to take that risk with our child because we want our child to end up with a certain job as a lawyer or as accountant or, you know, whatever it may be. And, and one of the things, therefore, we have to do is we have to learn to trust the wonderful versatility of our kids and their resilience. Mm, and if we, yes. we squash that too quick, too soon, we end up spending the rest of their lives trying to repair the damage. Sorry, and, Cody, were you jumping in here? <laughs> yeah, I, let, me get, let me get in on this because this is fantastic. And just to hook on to Richard, what you were talking about there is that that doesn't stop once they progress into adulthood either. We're still, we spend our time trying to squash them back into the same systems that the, the previous generation had. And like we, we mentioned before, as we move into this post-industrial age, knowledge workers, and just the fact that those dreams are things that we can actually create, like we're set up to create those things. You want to be a rock star? Do you know how much SoundCloud costs? Nothing. Yeah, you're right. So you can, like the, the, the ability for us to build those rungs on the ladder have never been more there, but I think we've never been more keen to, crush everyone back into the old world. And, you know, I, I could go off on a complete tangent here, but like even things like just buying a house, like that kind of quintessential American dream, we don't even stop to think whether that is what this generation of people should be looking to achieve. That was the previous one where different circumstances, but yeah, we, we just tend to railroad everyone back into the same system the same over and over and over again. I completely, completely agree with everything that you just said. I mean, when I, when I think about it is that, you know, this, this systemic behavior that we impose on to this young generation has been imposed upon us. And it's, it's interesting because as parents or as, you know, leaders, as coaches, it doesn't matter. We're, we're so scared of failing. We think of failing as some sort of permanent scar. When any single report card or anything that gives us a, you know, that F, it's never permanent. It's just a form of feedback. It's a feedback that you're not where you could be. Not, not that this is where you're going to be for the rest of your life. So we're so scared of avoiding it. Like we, we, we want to protect perfectionism at a very, very young age. Even as we get older, we want the perfect record. We want, we want to have the perfect outcomes. But in reality, the most beautiful thing in this world is when you fail because the number one skill set that anybody is going to ever need in their life to become successful is resilience. And resilience is practiced in failure. It's never practiced in success. You cannot practice, uh, you cannot practice resilience when you're at the top. You practice resilience when you're at the bottom, when you're stuck, when you feel like you have nowhere to go, when your back's against the wall, is when you actually have to dig deep and become resilient. And the more times that you could put yourself in situations like that, the more often you're going to learn what your, what your capacity is and what you're capable of. So what we need to do is, 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 praise failure, that opportunity, that this isn't permanent, that this is a form of feedback. This is, this is how you can succeed for the rest of your life. I've come across way too many adults and young people who don't, who've already say they don't try. And by not trying, they've already accepted failure. It is yeah. part of it is, you know, I, I'd rather not because this is this, I'm already good enough. <laughs> and, and what we forget, what we truly forget is that every single great human achievement, you know what it starts with? It starts with a single act of trying. So if we're not yeah. going to tell people to try, we're going, and we're going to tell them to accept failure by default, we're going to lose out on everything that they have the potential of doing in their lives that can benefit 
everybody. So we have to start to re rethink about what even does failure mean. It has never been permanent. It is not permanent. And any story of anybody who I've ever admired is because they've overcame significant amount of adversity, yet still somehow succeeded. I know, Cody, this is, this is up your alley. You see sports teams and coaches who have who have been in situations that are so tight and for some some reason some aspects they've dug deep as a team as a collective or as an individual and they've were able to persevere imagine we could teach this to everybody like when you're in when you are in the worst moments of your life that this is a moment to yes it sucks but this is a great opportunity to practice that skill set of resilience well you know and I I, I completely agree. And two things strike me. First is the phrase that I've, I've used for many years, which is you learn nothing new by getting something right. You only ever learn something <laughs> new from the point of That's a mistake beautiful. or the realization you don't know something, you can't do something, right? And, and so whether we're learning as children or adults or as organizations or in sports teams, the memory that actually that moment we screwed up is actually the moment we should all be looking for because that's the moment we're going to improve. And what's really fascinating to me about what you were saying, Sonny, is the answer actually lies in our kids under five. I remember when I trained as a teacher, and I don't know how you percentage it, but I love the sentiment and I agree with it wholeheartedly. I remember being told that we learned somewhere between 70 and 75% of everything we learn in our lifetime before we're five, right? Mm. Most of us learn to walk, talk. We learn to understand vocal intonation, facial expression, body language. We learn to make sense of the sensory world around us. And all of that stuff happens in the human learning curve before we start formal education. And then what starts to happen is exactly what you were saying. We start actually, firstly, to be taught that things are only of value if somebody else tells us they're of value. So then we start to only listen to and learn from people when they tell us something significant and important. But also, more importantly, we suddenly understand that failure um, is bad. And actually, logic and getting stuff correct is the currency of clever. And that's where, for me, the big issue starts to happen. Because then you start to protect your currency of clever. You don't want to spend it. You don't want to give it away. Um, if, if you imagine, for example, whether you're an elite, elite athlete or a child, um, if every day you go to do your job, whether that's learning or sports or business, and you walk into a place where there's somebody hierarchically more significant than you, and you imagine they're the croupier in a casino, right? And you're taking into that room um, a, a kind of sackful of, of poker chips. And they're going to ask you on the roulette wheel, to bet on odd or even or, or red or black or a single number. And those people walking into that room with loads of poker chips of resilience will slap loads down on red, black, odd, even, single. It doesn't matter because if they lose, they know they've got plenty more to play with. But there is a huge percentage of people in this world who through that education experience come out the other side carrying one or two poker chips. And they look at the game and they think, my God, I'd love to play that game. I reckon I could even be really good at it. But if I bet my one poker chip of self-esteem on red and it comes up black, I've got nothing left. Well, let's talk about that a little bit deeper because something that I'm passionate about, and I know both of you guys have a huge passion for leadership in general, but you're right in that we, we kind of go into this schooling system and it's a, a course in subservience. And we kind of, not only do we beat creativity and resilience out of everyone, we also beat leadership out of everyone. 
And so like, where are we missing the mark? How do we grab that child at five who, who can only see positivity and, and dreams and potentially leadership? Like, how do we, Richard, let's start with you. How, like, how do we fix the leadership model within this whole kind of education sphere? Well, I, I mean, again, I think it's one of those questions, Cody, and, and the more I've traveled through life, the more I've realized these things resonate out like ripples, right? So it's education, but it's bigger than that because the generics are all the same. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the great problems is our first experience of leadership in italics and in inverted commas is the leadership we experience as a child in a school, where a lot of what's going on is actually about control and compliance. So that becomes the model of leadership that we understand. Now, for me, and we can argue the semantics about it, but for me, the whole idea of looking after compliance is actually a management responsibility, not a leadership responsibility. So the thing is, as we grow older and we become hopefully experienced success or we end up in employment or, or what have you, we, we start to see leadership as a compliance thing. And, and the number of managers and leaders I've seen in organizations inside and outside of education mistake what they're doing when they, their label is as a leader, but actually what they're doing is, is enforcing, making people become um, – people are – not just compliant, but they are um, expected to um, respond to the manager or the leader's ideas. The leader is meant to be the problem solver in chief. They're the one that comes up with the strategy and it's everybody else's job to, to action it. You know, um, and, and I think we've got to be very careful about the, that compliance and about the hierarchy stuff around management and leadership too. We have to understand, first of all, the leadership begins with self. It begins with the ability to inspire yourself to try new things, to develop outside your um, locus of experience to, and control. Um, it's about using your curiosity and imagination. You know, arguably, kids under five are extraordinary self-leaders. And so many of those behaviors, managers, coaches, and leaders around the world would, would pay six-figure salaries for. So I think one of the things we have to do is help young people understand the difference between leadership and management, starting with themselves. And I suppose ultimately the recognition in education that, you know, leadership isn't about control, it's about empowerment. And I know that word today is associated with woke and all the rest of it, but actually (laughs) it's a really it's a hugely important term. Because the truth about empowerment, about creativity, about curiosity, is it requires huge discipline and huge self-discipline. And I know, Sonny, for example, it's something you're a huge advocate about, which is that that whole point of self-discipline, which comes as one of those traits that enters into the leadership conversation. But we mustn't lose sight of the empowerment stuff. It's really interesting when you think about control versus inspiring and it's and you have to be your own self-advocate to inspire yourself as a leader in order to give it to others one of the things that i think that is absolutely missing in leadership today is love Mm. and uh, similar to you richard love is this new woke term that we talk about right and it's uh, because there was almost this pride 
especially in in any of let's say the masculine based fields of of not giving love of showing you what we call tough love right like we want you to develop calluses on your mind and on your skin so you have the the this this rough uh, this rough and tough mentality but you know you said something really interesting that when kids are kids under 5 are are amazing leaders. I also start to think about what are some of the differences of how we treat children that are, let's say, in their very early years versus when we become adults. Like one one of the things I always am fascinated by is that the majority of the population has learned how to walk. And when a child's learning how to walk, and and I can say this because I've seen a lot of my friends recently have uh, young babies and they're sort of they're they're one two years old, uh, and they're starting to 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 get this mobility in their legs. And as they're starting to learn how to walk, their parents are standing across the room, cheering them on, you know, clapping their hands every time the kid stumbles. They tell them to get back up every time the the child falls over. They 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 promote them to say, "Don't worry, you can still do this." And as soon as they get to their mom or their dad, they pick them up, they give them a big hug and they kiss. And there's this insane amount of pride from the parents and the child. Although they collect bruises along the way when learning how to walk, they want their parents to put them back down on the floor so they can still learn how to walk, irrespective of the stumbles and falls. So it it makes me think: like, what is the difference? What are we doing to children at a very young age to teach them? Some of the, probably one of the, the hardest things in this world to do is to get the resilience to walk. Like if I was a kid and somebody's cleaning my diapers for me, somebody who's making my food, somebody's taking everything for me, what's the, what is the incentive to even learn how to walk? I'm treated like a king. It's so I have my own independence. I have my own, I, I could do things more. I, can, I have freedom in my life. This, this, this should be applied to everything. And and I know I know the concept sounds somewhat far off, but when you start to treat people with the platform, giving people the platform to stumble and fall, giving them the safe permission to, and you're still going to cheer them on, and there's nothing other than allowing them to succeed with the expectation that one day you will, and the time that's going to take you to 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 learn how to walk or to learn a language, it's okay. We're going to give you that leeway of time. This is why the majority of the population can walk. Imagine, just imagine for a second that parents were on the other end reprimanding you every single time you fell over. Every single time you, 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 know, you tripped on yourself, they yelled at you and said, you're not good enough. I knew you weren't capable of doing this. What would you think would happen to the population? We'd have so many people that would be crippled. Yeah. by their own limitations. So what we have to do is even as leaders and in, in, in coaches, we have to look at it and think, what am I saying to you to limit your beliefs that makes you not want to try, that's berating you? Like so much, so much, so many times do we use language, language that's so foul, so harsh that we would want, never want somebody to say to ourselves, but say, we'd say saying, if I don't say it like that to them, they'll never learn. They'll never understand. You know, I, 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 as people learn differently. But we've taught people to get berated. We taught them that, you know, this tough love and bullying is the only way that you're ever going to achieve anything in your life. But it's completely inaccurate. I mean, some of the, some of the people that, that have been uberly successful in what we'd, com- what we'd consider to be successful have been given the reality check of the things that they're going to need to do differently in their life. But it's been met with love, with the belief that you can it doesn't take much either, Sonny. Like as you were talking there and talking through that, that positive environment that we learn to walk, like just a, another example from me, like I coach Australian football in Canada. 
a lot of the, the oh. guys that end up playing for, well, my club team at the time hadn't seen the game even on television when they joined. They walked past the park and saw a bunch of guys kicking a football around and thought, what the hell are these guys doing? Like, it's clearly not rugby. It's <laughs> clearly not American football. So what are they doing? And, and you know, we, we were a pretty good team, but the reality is like there's 18 guys on the field and in our league, we're limited to six Australians. So you have to have 12. So two thirds of your team are Canadians and, and these guys are still learning the game. And a couple of years in, we implemented this thing called be the man. And what it was, was if you're learning, if you're in your first year or whether you're an Australian that's been playing for 20 years, like we want you to take the responsibility. We want you to take the shot on goal. We don't want you to just have an Australian stand next to you and you give the ball to them so that they can kick it so that it can look nice and kind of look like it looks in Australia. Like you take the responsibility and just to be the man with ethos completely transformed our team. We went on to make th- three straight grand finals. We made uh, four or five straight semifinals. We won two, two championships. And honestly, like it's just this tiny little tweak. We stopped berating Canadians who made mistakes because they were learning a game that, they hadn't even seen before. We took that all off them and said, you be the man, you take the shot. And if you miss, that's fine. We love you still, but you take the shot. Sometimes it's, it's almost semantic. By the way, before we go any further, gentlemen, so you both know football is played with a spherical ball. Just so you (laughs) both know that. Um, (laughs) This is the patronizing brother from the UK. Um, <laughs> but what I mean by that is, is this, you know, wouldn't it be when we're, when we're young kids, as you were, you were talking about Sonny, you know, we talk about kids playing, right? We never talk about kids uh, going to lessons and learning. You're not going to learn to walk today, my daughter. You're not going yeah. to <laughs> learn to talk today, my son, right? And today's objective is it's play. And wouldn't it be interesting, just on a semantic level, if we said to kids who were in school that they were going to school today to play? If people going to work in a corporate organization were going to play today? If people, you know, it, it's no mistake, is it, it within sports, Cody, where you turn around and you actually, during the game, you are playing, right? You're playing the game. Um, and actually, wouldn't it be great if that's how a coaching session was cast? We're going, we're going training today to play because what really interests me about that particular word is it's so deeply loaded right it's kind of something that's okay for kids to do but the older you get if you ever admit to anyone you're playing it almost sounds immature it sounds something frivolous it sounds something that you do if you've earned the right for space and time to i don't know play a computer game go and play in the backyard with your kids right but actually one of the really interesting things about that term is going back to everything we've talked about we are at our best as as learners as people being coached or managed when we're at play, not when we're at work. I remember you know, many years ago going for a visit around um, an all-through school in Spain, which had kids right the way from three years old up to 18-year-olds. And I was uh, privileged enough to be shown around by a couple of the oldest students. And we started off in the, in, with the youngest kids. And what was glorious to see with these old, older students who were 17, 18, was when we went into the, the young kids 
area, which was called a play area, not a classroom. The, <laughs> the older kids rolled up their sleeves, they undid their ties, they got down on their hands and knees, and they played in the sand and water with these, mm. these glorious young children. As we went through the building and finally ended up, if you like, on their floor where the oldest kids hung out, um, the first thing they did was they rolled down their sleeves, buttoned up their cuffs, did up their tie, put their jackets on. And I said, what are you doing that for? And they turned around to me and they said, because this is where learning gets serious. And I thought to myself, oh my goodness me, what have the last 15 years been about then? That is really interesting because what we start to see actually in a lot of the new studies that have come out with play-based learning is that children perform better. People perform better. And it's interesting because you're right, it's a, it is a fully loaded word. What is, what is play versus learning? Why aren't yeah. they the same? They're almost, they, 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 they're, there's a congruency or a similarity or synonyms based on play and learning. Because when you play, it's almost like you, you have the desire to like, uh, there's a desire to practice resilience. There's a desire to fall over. There's a desire to, to use your imagination and to construct things out of your imagination. But when you're learning, there's always this rigid part that you have to do it a certain way. And this yeah. is the only way of doing it. You know what? While you're saying this, it, it, it reminds me of a time that I was teaching uh, a grade 10 uh, student about parabolic functions. And, and it sounds scary. Like the, there's so many different terms in math, like calculus, parabolas, quadratics, things like this that, that makes a lot of people fearful. Um, and, and gives math anxiety. But when I, the truth is a parabolic function is, is, is essentially like shooting a basketball. It just is like the arc of, of anything and, and the, the shape of that, that arc. And when I started explaining to, 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 to that individual, he felt really, really off put still. So I said, let's go outside and shoot some balls. And I'll show you what I mean. And I was able to explain like the, the vertex, I was able to explain what a parabola is just through playing. And he looked at me, he's like, you got to be kidding me. Is it really that easy? It, it can't be that easy. And it, it took me back because his teacher prefaced this as the hardest, most difficult unit. So everybody should be paying attention. And somebody who's already weak at a specific subject matter automatically is going to throw in the towel and say, I don't want to do this because if I'm not good enough already, why should I even pay attention to the hardest unit? But Every single thing has practical applications when you introduce play, right? Everything does. Even gravity does. It's such a difficult concept when you're learning it in grade 12 physics, but it's really something that we live by every day. And the way things need to be taught is through play. Like what you just said has really inspired me, makes me think about how can you, how could curriculum base strictly on play? Because when you do that, you, you create that, you, you allow for the practical elements of education to come to life for a child. Yeah, and bigger, right? I mean, can you imagine, for example, and I'm sure you do, Cody, you go into a, a training session with, with your group of players and you want to try something new and you said, come on, let's just play at some tactics. Or if in a business you turn around at a, at a meeting where you're asking people to Think differently and you'd say come on let's just play around with strategy suddenly the connotation of the flavor and climate of that meeting is totally different well it does it takes it out of you you mentioned it richard in your first answer there we're obsessed with efficiency and we're obsessed yeah. with economics and economizing everything measuring everything the current way that we try to measure things, we can't put that over the top of play. That's why it scares the shit out of everyone. But you're right in that that's where 
like you said, just in a, a business meeting, let's play around with this. Or to give you a, a perfect example, we basically, my team, Team Canada, we essentially only play game simulations. So we just come up with a scenario. Hey, it's going to be a, a, a jump ball, uh, this part of the field and uh, go out to your positions. And like, that's how we train now. And it allows all of our guys to problem solve on the spot and come up with creative solutions and figure out new game plans for me. So it, like it helps everyone from the leadership right down to the players as they just go out there and play. What you're saying is, is partly we, we're coming back almost full circle to the, the initial question about education. Um, and, and one of the great breaks on education innovation, which I hear all the time, is that countries are still measured in exam results and league tables. You know, every couple of years we hear from the OECD about how bad countries are doing in the international testing arena and governments go crazy and the media goes crazy. And then what happens is we talk to the education sector and we say, you know, we need to innovate here. We need to, we need to be looking at exploring new, new ways of, of educating our young people. And the answer always comes back, that's fine but we've still got to hit these academic targets. We've still got to prepare kids for tests. And if you think about it, if that becomes your focus, you know, what we should be doing, I think in every field, is innovating and then finding ways to hold that innovation to account. The problem in education is we expect people to innovate, but we want to hold them to account in exactly the same way we always have. <laughs> You're, I, I, I'm thinking about like a sports situation in this uh, as you're as you're talking because this goes so this is so much ingrained in education and something that we carry out into our everyday lives. Uh, and Cody, you might be able to chime in a little bit this because it's, it's somewhat sports related. But recently in the NBA, what we're starting to notice is a lot of three point shooting that it's actually becoming such a. a a strategy to shoot outside the perimeter uh, and it's it's has led teams to championships and we've seen this and it can make a, a player who would be considered to perhaps to mediocre to be the MVP of the league and it, it's because of the innovation and the mindset of how the evaluation changed instead of being somebody who needs to follow or fall into the specific construct that they, if they, let's say they're not tall enough to, to play inside the court, but if they, if they play outside, if they master these other skills, they can still be a top player. That's where innovation really, really lies. So Richard, when you're saying this, it, it, it's making me scratch my head and I'm thinking, yeah, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Like we've created, we we have asked people to be innovative without giving the by, but pigeonholing them to a framework in which doesn't allow for innovation. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I, and Cody, I'm sorry to bring this up at this point, but I just want to refer back to um, 2003 and my greatest living moment. Yeah, and uh, my greatest living moment as an Englishman was uh, watching us beat you guys in the Rugby Union World Cup in 2003 in the Australian homeland. And it was very interesting because I got the opportunity a few years later to speak to two of the um, architects of the English rugby team at that time, Sir Clive Woodward, who was the head coach, 
and Dave Allred, who was actually brought into the England rugby team, uh, but had a background, interestingly, as a golf coach. Um, and he was an expert in perfecting golf swings. And the reason Clive brought him into the England rugby union setup was he wanted to use the biomechanics Dave had developed in golf to help his kickers become more efficient under pressure so that those millimetres that can often make the difference in any kind of kicking game or a golf swing were eradicated. And, and in a way, that's why Johnny Wilkinson became so you know, metronomic mm-hmm. in his career, because he was actually taught to think of his leg like a golf club. Um, but what was really fascinating, and I think this is the, the, the great lesson innovation for me, was when Dave arrived, uh, as a novice to rugby, which I think is often really important, by the way. I think being a novice, being ignorant, again, is one of those semantics we often cast aside, where actually the ignorant person in the room could be the genius that comes up with the question that solves the problem, right? And Dave Allred had been watching some of the coaching early on in his involvement. And he turned around to Clive Woodward and he said, why is it that in rugby union, players are caught to catch the ball in their chests in in what i think they call the bread basket right why, why do they catch the ball there and clive went well that's because that's how rugby does it that's the most efficient way that's over the years he said yeah but he said i've spent a lot of time in australia and in aussie rules football they're taught to catch the ball above the head and how what would that do to percentage of retention of ball if our boys were taught to catch the ball above their head rather than wait for it to come into the breadbasket. Anyway, Clive thought it was a great idea. Went out to Australia, found one of um, the AFLs, I don't know their name, but one of the top um, catching coaches in the AFL and got them to teach the England rugby team how to catch the ball above their heads. And when you look at the data around the 2003 Rugby Union World Cup, one of the reasons for England's incredible ball retention rate was because they were catching the ball above their heads. And it was something other rugby coaches were looking at thinking, why hadn't we thought of that? And it's that idea, that courage to say, we're going to go out there, we're going to play, we're going to look for people who can catalyze different ideas and different opinions, because that's the way we grow. We're not going to grow by having insular conversations just within one sphere of, of experience we have to go and play no innovation can't come from inside and and those examples that you've just described the the three pointers sunny that's from economics essentially and mm-hmm. you know the the guys that are running nba teams now you know they've got harvard mbas or mit mbas in economics and statistics and and, and it's a little bit of the money ballization of basketball, but you're right. Some, a coach eventually had to look at that and go, holy shit, maybe we should start shooting three pointers. And, yeah. and there were, there were teams before golden state that were trying it, but they were the first ones to get it right. Yeah. Richard, like you said, I mean, there's a million examples like that. I, I, I wrote a whole chapter in my book about <laughs> out, outsiders coming into the performance landscape. And the one that I wrote about was the Australian cricket team went and hired a major league baseball coach, a throwing oh. coach, because they were looking at why were shortstops and third baseman and second baseman able to throw it with such accuracy to the first baseman every single time in baseball but the cricketers when they were throwing to try to hit the stumps they were throwing it all over the place so they went and got a 
baseball throwing coach, completely revolutionized cricket in general. No one had really looked at fielding as a source of competitive advantage before. And if you follow cricket, you'll know through the you know, late 90s and early 2000s, not only were Australia dominant in, in batting and bowling, but they completely changed fielding as well. The way that they would slide to receive the ball, the way that they threw the, um, you know, complete competitive advantage, but it was an outsider coming in and going, well, why do you do it that way? And again, I, I think, and this is why I love you guys, is that there needs to be people on the inside who are willing to say this needs to change. And then there needs to be people on the outside willing to say, I'll help. Yeah. And that's so true of education, isn't it? Because to an extent, everybody from every sphere of life knows that we need um, an evolution, if not a revolution in education, but we keep going back to the same people to provide the stimulus. And one of the things we need as a profession is to be more courageous about welcoming people from outside of education in. You know, we're, we're not great at that. We're a very insular profession. We tend only to trust ourselves and people that have been in our, in our sphere um, and, and our area. And we need to be much, we need to learn lessons from business and from sports about saying, if we're truly gonna create a capacity and an environment for evolution for innovation and creativity and we have got to have the confidence to get people from the outside to come and challenge us on the conventions we've become stuck in yeah and i I think the unfortunate thing just to hook onto that idea is we think that we're doing that by just adding technology yeah But, but that's not dealing with the systemic problem it's it's just applying another band-aid to the same problem and what we're seeing is that in education, the biggest innovation does lie in technology it is the innovation of a new communication tool or a new whiteboard or a new monitoring system or a new way to um, have students conduct assignments and tests. The problem with that is that you're right. It, it doesn't really solve any of the problems. It can, it can reduce the amount of teaching time, perhaps create different, um, different opportunities for children to learn in, but the innovation in education lies in mindset Mm. at its core it's in mindset it is how do we treat these children to want to become lifelong learners at its at a simple part you know in 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 the province that me and cody are in right now in in canada our government has recently increased classroom sizes which has got a lot of parents in a scare but every single study has shown that classroom size to the degree in which they increased it doesn't actually make a difference. The biggest difference in your, the quality of education is the quality of the teacher, is the quality of the leader at the classroom. And instead of looking at the reduction or the increase of classroom sizes, we should be looking at how do we help the educator become better educated. And that to me is like asking this question, how does the leader become a better leader? How do they learn to lead better? How do we add in these different pedagogical approaches that they can apply in their day-to-day classroom teachings or their day-to-day coaching, whatever it may be? And as you said, bringing an outsider's opinion, this is critical. This is mm-hmm. critical because when, when we look at some of the biggest breakthroughs in this world and, and just even just, just overall happiness in this world, it is based upon giving people the freedom to become innovative. It's based upon giving people the flexibility to live the life that they want to live. So what we have to do is, it's, especially in education, is to start to create constructs in which we're not always right. 
Right. And as you said, it's extremely insular. Uh, Richard, be, not being a, a, a formal certified teacher has been my largest uphill battle in the space of education. <laughs> and it's interesting you know also, because... Sunny, I just want to, sorry to interject at that point. I mean, we've, we've known each other a short time, but in the short time I've known you and spoken with you, you are one of the most dynamic and exciting educators I've come across in a very long time. And what interests me about that was, was off air before we started talking, was talking about your background. And it's yeah. fascinating to me that you are without doubt one of the most skilled and knowledgeable educators, most inspirational people I've met in a while in our profession. And it's because partly you come from a different sphere, I think. Yeah, thank you, Richard. I appreciate that. And the, the feeling is extremely mutual. And I, I think if we, you know, if there's a collectiveness to work together, and I, and I understand that it's not just about the educator, there's, there's entire parental component with education that we have to take in consideration, desire for my child to be successful. So put them through the regiments that I went through, because it's the only way that they're going to. But if we all collectively as a society change the way we think, in terms of like the value of an education, like somebody going to Oxford or Harvard isn't more valuable than the person who went through an online learning course to get uh, a similar skill set. If we change our perception on that as leaders, right, as, as employers, as other people in society, then we can start to think different. This will start to allow people to take different avenues in their life to achieve what they want to achieve. And, and that's where I think, that's why I think so much lies in us as a society is collectively to not be the hypocrite. Like the hypocrisy that we live by is saying, yes, this would be great, but inside I want the child or the student who has scored perfect on their test to work for my company, right? Or the person who has shown through some sort of metric system to join my team. But in, in reality, if we have to be at the top asking for the alternative, asking for the other individual to come in, the person who is unexpected to deliver upon. Because when, we cha when you bring in the outside perspective, you don't know what the deliverables are. And that's the most beautiful part is that you have no idea. But we need to be open to not knowing. We need to be open to reduce the expectation it might be nothing or it could be revolutionary but with that with that bringing the outsider and bringing the ideation of and constructs of welcoming new ideas welcoming new thoughts welcoming new perspectives and really giving them the same attention that we give to the uh, the thoughts of somebody who is considered to be valid in the specific field is where you start to see the innovation lie. It's amazing because, you know, when I hear about Edison never, you know, getting kicked out of school at third grade, but probably becomes one of the most prolific inventors of, of history. It, it, where did that curiosity get exposed? How do we allow somebody to want to invent over and over again, irrespective of the traditional failures. So that's where I think about our lives and our education system is that if we create a construct where we welcome new ideas, where we welcome and, we, and parents have the flexibility and understanding of, yes, 
we're going to create an environment for my child to thrive, not for my child to get A pluses, but for my child to thrive. And therefore, we're going to bring in new ideas, new innovators, new educators, new leaders to help promote this mentality. Where would our world be? I really think we would have a completely different society. I think I think we would wouldn't have a society that you know promotes money and promotes better employment. I think we'd be having a society that promotes innovation, that promotes happiness, that promotes smiling, that promotes an internal feeling of gratitude and gratefulness. I, I agree. And I, can I just drop a quick story, Cody? I, I hope this is okay because it really resonates. I, I had the chance uh, uh, last year, um, last summer, to work with a guy called Barry Barish, who was the 2017 Nobel Prize winner for physics. Um, now, I'm not a scientist, so you're going to have to forgive me, but his work apparently is, which you can imagine winning a Nobel Prize, his work in the gravitational waves is, is um, you know, profound, profound to an extent that they, they rank him up there with, with modern scientists like Stephen Hawking. And I talked to him a little bit about his recruitment uh, policy, um, and, and it really came out of a conversation because he told me that they'd had over 3,000 uh, serious applicants for the 138 research posts they had on this team. And by serious applicants, he was talking about 3,000 scientists who were world-renowned in their own right. You know, they, these were scientists with multiple doctorates across a whole range of science disciplines. And I, so I said to him, how did you whittle 3,000 geniuses down to 100? And he said, well, it's really interesting. Um, he said, because, and the thing that stuck with me was this. He said, the, the, the number one criteria we were looking for when we got to the final stages of recruitment was I didn't want anybody on my team that wasn't capable of asking a stupid question. And I just think that's so poetic in, mm. in what we've talked <laughs> about, really. It is. And uh, I, I'm glad you said that because. This is the innovation that I want to raise is that I want team-based work. We actually have to start learning once we get into the workforce. So if we're going to be forced into you know, going through this traditional education system, being spat out at 22 with a degree, our, our idea of teamwork at that point is basically that we did a team project in university and Sally did all the work, Barry did nothing and you know, there's, there was one person who presented it at the end. Then we get into the workforce and essentially everything we do in teams, 80% of the work we do in the workforce is in teams, but we keep tearing down those walls and, and people are making the argument that there needs, there's kind of less teamwork with remote work. There's actually more teamwork in remote work. You need to be more deliberate with how you approach the teamwork. You need to get on Skype and, and have those five, 10 minute conversations with people that you would normally have at the water cooler. So I want the education system to help facilitate that team dynamics because that is what we do. That is why we live in big cities. A city is a team of people that have come together. That is what we do in sports teams. That is what we do in the business world. That is what we do in families. So understanding that at its core is going to help us, in my mind, break down a lot of the walls that we have, including politically, including societally, understanding and having empathy for, for each other. Like we can learn this stuff for the first 22 years of our lives and I think we'll be in a better place. Yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. You know, education 
it is such a hyper-competitive solo pursuit for so much time. Go back, though. You know, before five, it is, it is teamwork. Those kids are working together all of the time on their learning and their play. And yeah. then as they get older, they're separated out into desks and they're told they're competing against each other. As parents, we perpetuate it by saying, how did you do in your test today? Where did you come? Did you top? Did you come in the top five? You know, so we start competing with each other. We then start getting into that whole thing, which is fantastic in schools, where kids naturally start to realize what they can do. So they look to their friend for help or guidance. And then we call that cheating and we punish them, which is, which is <laughs> you know, and those are the very skills we lament not being in the workplace today, where people are still hyper competitive with each other, where they protect their own ideas and their own knowledge rather than share it with a colleague. Because again, we've been, it's been hardwired into us that by sharing and, and recognizing each other's strengths and weaknesses and supporting one another, that somehow that's cheating. Um, and I think you're absolutely right. You know, at the end of the day, the world is a collaborative pursuit, yet we don't educate our children. Um, well, we educate them out of it, which is the real tragedy. We don't, almost don't need to teach people how to. We need to ask the fundamental question, which is what do we do to teach them out of it? I, 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 I look at this and I think there's so much of this lies when we look at education and team dynamics in how we approach individuals. And uh, Richard, when, you, when you're talking about cheating is actually a collaborative effort, <laughs> I wish I could have said that to my university professor uh, when I got <laughs> caught for cheating. But it, the truth is that it, you're actually right. It's that the, the strengths and weaknesses analysis of, of each and every single one of us is going to be different. So why not leverage that for each other? And the second thing, as you, were, as you both were speaking, I was thinking that one of, one of the, the most interesting parts about team dynamic is creating an inclusive and welcoming culture for everybody. I was sitting on a panel recently uh, for bullying. And we were talking or having a, a, a fair conversation on minimalizing bullying in the classroom, having a minimal tolerance policy. And I just made the question and I said, well, why, why don't we have a zero tolerance policy? Why does that have to be minimal? Because like when, like I understand friendly bullying between mates, but I don't understand it when you make somebody go home and feel invalid. And the same thing happens in teams. The same thing happens in workforces where people leave feeling like they are not worthy. So imagine creating an environment where everybody felt worthy that your participation counts, that your strengths are actually going to be utilized here, that you, this is a place that you can develop yourself. This is a place that we want you to exercise that. And where your pitfalls may lie, we're going to have an individual that can jump in and giving you a, a helping hand. And, when you, and Cody, when you said that a city is a team, I'm smiling ear to ear thinking, yeah, man, you are right. This is exactly it. We've all come together to collectively work towards a common mission to make our home an amazing place. That's what we've done. So the competition or berating or putting each other down, it's, it's, there, there's a really, really fine line between competition to inspire and competition to defeat, right? And, and when we think about it, if, if everybody, if I need everybody to lose in order for me to win, that's not the right mentality I, I want to have. Right, I, I want I want to be inspired by those around me to propel myself to even do better 
and better and better. And, and, and hopefully the better I do, it inspires the people that are technically competing against me to even do better. And then you have this upward momentum versus what I see is that this lack of inclusion, this, this forced sort of mentality of accepting bullying is where we where in our hearts that it's just not right. And that will, that will prevent everything that we've been talking about today. And don't you think, sadly, that that's perpetuated and amplified at the moment by social media, which, you know, we have to recognize we're, we're all treated, you know, it, it's in it, its infancy and we're all reacting to it like toddlers to a new toy. So we're having to come to terms and learn about it. But right now, what saddens me so much about certain areas in social media is people there is, there is definitely a large movement of people who spend so long taking down other people's opinions or belittling other people through that medium. Um, and we see it at the highest level of politics, for example. And, and I worry about what kind of role modeling that gives for our kids and our more vulnerable people. Because somehow it's given that, everything you've just said, Sonny, it's given it amplification and it's almost given it um, credibility. It's almost made it acceptable. And I think one of the really great challenges we face, not just with the kids who are currently in education, but, you know, those that have recently left, generations who have grown up with the advent of social media, is we have to help role model for them a different type of dialogue, a different way to communicate collaborate with each other yeah you you nailed it i think social media is really interesting because there's a lot of blame perpetuated on social media that's gets going to consistently grow because it has been the root of cyberbullying, the root of suicide the root of whether you're a kid or an adult you feel it and there's this sense of anxiety that has been built up from social media. I, I wish in our, in our education system, we could start to look at how to utilize social media for the good, because as it can perpetuate the bad, it can also perpetuate the good. Sure. We sometimes, you know, I've been speaking to some parents about, you know, the difficulty that they have with their children and following individuals on social media. And my response is typically, well, you know, maybe we can empower them and let them know that they press followed. They can also press unfollow. Mm -hmm. We have the power to choose what we want to watch. It's not, it's not like the, it, it, when we say, well, I'm addicted to this account or I'm addicted to this TV show, or, I'm addicted to this, this uh, watching this individual and their lifestyle. Uh, you're not, you've just convinced yourself that you are. Because at one point, you never had it. At one point, you never had it. And if this person disabled their account or this TV show went off air, you wouldn't be addicted to it anymore. It'd be gone. And you probably forget about it. So, you know, we, we create this false narrative in our head that social media controls us when technically we are in power of it. I wish I could tell every child that. I wish I could tell every adult that. Whatever bothers you online that creates that sense of when you watch it, that, makes that, that gives you that pin in your stomach, press unfollow. You, you can clear out the trash yourself and it, it is so easy. It is with, you know, the single action of your thumb. So I, I think there, you know, the value of social media right now is, is in the, it has a negative net value overall, but it has a huge potential to have a positive net value. It, 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 there's a great connection because of this, right? Like Richard, when I, I got to see, you know, things that you've done on your Twitter account and what you think about and, and who you are through YouTube, which I thought was fascinating. I felt like I've known you before we even met, right? So there's this great, this, this great ability that it has, sure. but on the, 
On the other end of it, I, 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 I truly believe it has a negative net value right now because we have allowed it to be so diminishing on our self-esteem. We've allowed it to take control of our lives and, we, and we've given it credit that it does not deserve. We have said that because of social media, we've been in, we've, we've been in situations that, uh, that have increased our level of anxiety and depression in this world, which it has, but I would love to tell that, you know, you know to, to anybody who said that said, go press and follow. Go and, and maybe follow people or things or places or accounts that, inspire you, that make you smile, that give you a sense of hope, that tell you that, you know, life is more beautiful than anything that you could have ever imagined. That, that could, that, that's, that's some beautiful messaging that, that can come from that as well. But I, I'm so with true. you on that. It, it is, it is right now is, it is perpetuated the negative that it, it is the, that we've, we've allowed it to be bullying that we could hide behind a screen and yell at somebody, make them feel belittled and unworthy. And, and we can, and we think it's funny. We think it's humorous. Well, if I think that's funny and I think that's humorous and I participate in that, if it happens to me and I'm upset, then maybe I should have never participated in the first place. There's once again, there's some level of hypocrisy that, that exists in here, right? It's, it's to also like if we put an extreme lack of tolerance on this that it is not going to be tolerated and this is the severity of the punishment the way we look at murder this is the severity of the punishment you'd have a lot less people doing it i think there there's it, we 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 should not be so friendly with bullying at any capacity we think bullying the we're you know like the famous saying, sticks and stones are going to break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Words will hurt you more than any sticks and stones that could ever be thrown at you in your life. Words are something that will scar you indefinitely. It is all, uh, so many people cannot heal from the words that have been told to them at such a young age. It causes, it, it doesn't just even cause anxiety and depression. It causes all illnesses. It's the root of our low self-esteem. It's the root of why we feel that we're incapable of, of achieving things in our lives. It's a root, it's, it's a root of bad relationships. It's a root of, of bad parenting. It's a root of, of how we show up in our lives. It's a root of why we don't smile. But if words have the power of, of breaking me, what could words also do? It can mend you. It can promote you. It can make you feel so much better. It can make you smile. And it's not just the words that others say to you. It's the words that you've said to yourself. It's the words that you believe that, that you say to yourself that others have, have bestowed upon you. So that's why I think like, you know, the power of social media, if, if, if it's the power of words and the power of communication, imagine we could teach people to use this for the good. Imagine, imagine it, it, the, the way you could do it. And it's taught in a classroom that to compliment each other for it. You know, you know, it's so difficult. The number <laughs> one thing that. that most people find with yeah. social media is putting themselves out there. Oh, it's so hard to press post. It's not hard to press post. It's hard to deal with opinions of others when you press post. There's a fear that exists of it. Well, I'm going to expose myself to the world. No, you're going to expose yourself, not just to the world. You're going to expose yourself to, to, to scrutiny that is unwarranted. That's what's going to happen. You know that. We all know that. But why do we allow that? That means that we could change the entire perspective of social media if we teach it and, and don't become hypocrites ourselves. Like I, I've noticed, you know, like I, I started unfollowing things and, and, and people that have made me feel uncomfortable, that, that didn't sit well in my stomach. And what happened is that now social media is something I'm starting to enjoy. I don't feel my, 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 my feeling towards it has drastically changed. I said, well, 
wow, you know, it's so empowering to know I can press these buttons and it can change how I feel for my day. It could be my source of inspiration. And, and that's what I want to use it for. I want to use it for my source of learning, my, my source of inspiration. And, and, it, and I think for so many of us, it could be. But as we build our social profiles, I think our, our tolerance, we can, we can have difference in opinion, but I don't think we should be allowed to berate each other. I don't think, I, I've read comments that people wrote to each other and I think, how is this funny? How is this even acceptable? Because if this was you or this was anybody else or something that was close to you, you'd, you'd, want, to, you'd want to terrorize the person who wrote this comment. So why, don't, why, why do we accept it from, from, from some username behind the screen? We should not. You know, it, there's a lot of pain and agony that will come from this if we don't buckle down and have a, a very strong mutual understanding how punishing this could be for an individual. Yeah. I mean, for me, it goes back to what you were saying before, Sonny, about love. You know, one of the things yeah. that's really important to me is that we have to, we can't just take an understanding and responsibility that comes with love for granted. And we often do with some of those soft skills as we develop as human beings. We actually have to help young people to understand what love is and the importance of love. And what I mean mm. by that also is the mutuality of respect. And I think that the final thing from me on, on that is that we spend so, some of us become very aggressive with others because we become. Um, worried about our own inadequacies um, and we yeah. almost we, we you know we, we become aggressive to protect our, our feelings of inadequacy and I think what's really really important in this whole piece around collaboration is helping young people develop into adults who have not only an acceptance of their own inadequacies but are confident about them and confident about what qualities they bring to the world and if we can do that, we can start to truly create the kind of dovetailing that collaboration needs, which is the confidence to know what you're better at than I am and, and the confidence to know that I can bring something to the conversation. And if we get together and we share honestly together, amazing things can happen. I, I, I'm smiling when you've said this, and, and it's so interesting that we, we are defined by our inadequacies versus that the things that make us adequate. Yeah, I, I was part of this study uh, for a university here in Canada, and we took these groups of teens and we put them in a classroom. And I went to the, the front of the classroom and I, I told these teens that I'm going to give them a test, but there's a catch to this test that, that I'm never going to take up the answers. And my only expectation is them to be completely honest with their answers. And I said, they're good. they had two sheets of paper in front of them. I said, for each sheet of paper, I'm going to ask you a question and you're going to have a minute to write down your answer. The first question I began to dictate. And I said, I want you to write everything you change and everything you dislike about yourself when you look in the mirror. The clock starts ticking. The kids pick up their pens. They're somewhat confused for the first few seconds and then they begin to write. By the end of the minutes, their hands are sore from overwriting. There's tears dripping from their eyes. We didn't plan a breather, but we had to give them a five-minute breather. So they left the room and came back in. The second sheet of paper is now in front of them. I go back to the front of the classroom and I say question number two. I say, I want you to write down everything that you love about yourself. The clock starts ticking. 86% of the kids never pick up their pencil. Mm -hmm. And those who do finish within 18 seconds. Mm -hmm. So it gives you an idea where our head's at. And it's like we, we, we feel that 
that we that in order to get better we need to know our weaknesses no in order to get better we need to know our strengths when we identify our strengths it's like layering a sheet of paper made of confidence one sheet of paper is very very easily torn but try tearing a stack of a thousand sheets mm-hmm. it's impossible and so we have to practice the 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 mindset of self love and that's a reminder of what I'm adequate about and what I can become adequate in and that 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 is that's where I, I when I did that I was so taken back and it made me think about myself and say hey what do you love about yourself what do you say to yourself when you look in the mirror right the mirror the, every other animal that looks as reflection uses it for drinking they look for water for us we look at our insecurities we think about everything that we're not and and everything that's wrong with us versus everything that is right with us all the things that all the gifts that we can bring to the world so uh, I, I, when you said that, that inadequacy, it really hit home for me because we're only inadequate in the eyes of ourselves that people have imposed upon us. There's so much things that we are great. There's so much beauty and wonder that we could bring to this world. It, it, our, our, our individuality is what makes us beautiful. It's what makes us unique. It, it is, it is, there's been 104 billion people who've walked this earth and nobody has been alike. Nobody yeah. has the exact same genetics. There, there's a wonder in there to, to go into your strengths and to the differences that make you, make you so different than everybody else. There's, there's such a beautiful aspect to that. And, and, and that to me is like when we go down that route, that's where worthiness really lives. That's beautiful. It's funny. It's funny we're talking about this. So on the weekend I was watching the NFL game and – and I was just sitting there watching and, and everyone was yelling at each other. Coaches were yelling at the players. Players were yelling at the other players. Obviously, the fans are yelling at the players. And I thought to myself, what would happen if these – like how good would these guys be if they were in a supportive environment rather hmm. than being told even by the commentators. The commentators sit there and just tear shreds off these players. That's not yeah. good enough. He didn't do a good enough job there. That's not up to this level. Like, it's no wonder that these guys are a mess. And I was just sitting there watching. I wonder what would happen. Like, how good would these guys be at what they do if it was a supportive environment all around them rather than just being berated the whole time? And, yeah, it kind of touches on, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a masculine element to that, obviously. There's a systemic element to it. But you guys are exactly right. Like, let's let's – agree to bring love back we need it in our workplaces we need it in our sports teams we need it in our families we need it in education uh it's got to come back we need more of it uh it needs to be in the places where it's historically not been welcome and uh yeah we're like you you guys have been talking about we're, we're capable of so much I know we've got to get you guys out of here. So why don't we wrap with this? Where can people follow along with you guys? I would imagine there's going to be a lot of people keen to, <laughs> to follow along with the projects that you guys are working on. So Sonny, we'll start with you. Where can people find you? Uh, yeah. Uh, website, tutorbright.com. And on Instagram is probably the easiest way to communicate with me. And that's at sunnyv underscore TB. And Richard? Uh, for me, it's uh, my website, which is just richardgerver.com. And Twitter's probably the best space, and that's just at richardgerver. Wonderful, lads. This has been 
personally uh, amazing for me. Uh, so stimulating intellectually and I, I have a buzz going on. It's early in the morning for us in, in Toronto, but uh, it's going to be a good day. Thank you so much for starting my day this way and, and uh, I hope we can do this again sometime. It's been an absolute honor. Yeah, amazing. Thank you both. Amazing, amazing yeah. session. Yeah, you guys are leaving my heart feeling full. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks, gents.